when I finally got to come back to running, like my number one goal was no longer run as fast as I can. My number one goal was I don't want to have to give this up long term again. Um, and so that was motivation to um, have proper nutrition and to realize like if I have to be five to ten pounds heavier than what I thought my goal weight was, but if that keeps me healthy, like it's worth it. That's Sarah Sellers, and this is episode 71 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What's up, everybody? It's your host, Mario Fraioli. And this week, I'm excited to welcome my third returning guest to the show. It's Sarah Sellers, who finished second at the 2018 Boston Marathon. We recorded this podcast in front of a live audience back in early July at the Sports Basement in San Francisco. I spoke with Sarah for about 35 minutes before we opened it up to audience Q&A. I really enjoyed this one. We touched on a lot of topics that we didn't cover the first time around back in episode 28, including Sarah's decision to run the Chicago Marathon this fall and what she's changing about her approach going into that race. We also talked about avoiding the comparison trap and having the confidence in herself to make adjustments to her training when it's necessary. We got into the steps she's taken to stay healthy and keep her body strong, her renewed focus on nutrition and being at a healthy weight versus at her fastest weight, how she's learning to prioritize long-term health over short-term success, and a lot more. This episode is brought to you by UCAN, which is one of Sarah's sponsors, and it's also a brand whose products I use to fuel my own training and racing. UCAN powders and bars with super starch give you slow-release carbs and long-lasting energy without the big crash. I've used the super starch drink powder to fuel my last few marathons, and the new Hydrate product, which I've been taking on my longer training runs, is a clean, natural electrolyte replacement with no sugar, zero calories, and five added electrolytes to replace the nutrients that you lose in sweat. Visit GenerationUCAN.com and use the code SHAKEOUT25, that's 25, and you'll save 25% on your first order. Or if you use the code SHAKEOUT, no number at the end of that one, and you will save 15% on subsequent orders. My thanks to UCAN for supporting this episode of the podcast. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Sarah Sellers. Thanks to all of you for coming out to this live recording of the Morning Shakeout podcast. And Sarah Sellers, welcome back to the Morning Shakeout podcast. You were first on the show, episode 28, before New York City Marathon last year, and you are only the third returning guest, so it's Aww. great to have you back. Yay, well, I'm, I'm glad I, I got to be a repeat customer, so thank you. <laughs> well, you're in good company. I mean, uh, Des Linden on twice, Scott Fobble on twice, and now Sarah Sellers on twice. They've gone on to do some oh, great wow. things, so maybe That's it's a good impressive. omen. Yes. You know, they have like the Sports Illustrated curse. I like to think it's the morning shakeout blessing. Yes, okay, I'll go with that. That's great. Um, well, let's start with an announcement that came out last week. You're going to run the Chicago Marathon this fall. Yay! It's going to be your first non-Boston or New York major. Talk to me about the decision to run Chicago this fall instead of something else. Yeah, so um, Chicago, I'm super excited because it's, yeah, like the first time I'm going to be on like a relatively flat, fast course. So, um, And then also, you know, with the Olympic standard being changed, um, I think that makes it really exciting. There's a great group of U.S. women who um, were all, I think, not all, but we all on a good day are capable of running the standard. So I think we're all hungry to um, get out there and run the standard. So So just a little background for all of you out in the crowd. The Olympic standard 
up until a few months ago, they had a B and an A, and the A was 237, and the B was 245, and then they changed it to 229.30, which is a significant drop. Um, so it kind of screwed up with a lot of people's race plans. We're going to see people racing marathons this fall that they probably weren't planning on doing before the trials. Were you planning on racing a fall marathon before they changed the standard? Um, I was hoping to. I didn't know. I was. It was kind of a play it by ear thing, but then when they changed the standard, it was like, yeah, for sure. Because in your last two marathons, you ran 236 and change, which would have been fine. You would have been under the standard, good to go. You could have sat at home and just, you know, done whatever you wanted to do until the trials in 2020. Yeah. And now you've got to run a significant personal best to get that under your belt. Does that feel exactly. daunting at all? Um, yes and no. I I am kind of, you know, the, the standard is definitely, like, the goal going into Chicago. Um, but it's kind of, I'm, I'm putting it down to, like, a second-tier goal where um, I'm trying a new approach this time. I feel like with my last two training cycles, I've had very um, hard and fast uh, goals of, like, this is exactly the time goal I'm going after. Like, this is what I'm training for. This is what I'm thinking about every day. And I think that kind of backfired um, because I think I got so obsessed with, like, paces on workouts and mileage and all the numbers aspect of it. And I'd lose sight of, like, you know, what's the purpose of this workout? And so this time, like, I'm trying to focus more on the effort and the purpose behind workouts and have that same approach going into the race where you're like, yes, there's the time goal. Like, that's um, that's still the goal, but um, it's more like the time is almost like the out, just the side effects, the outcome. Um, so, yeah, it's more about, like, having the right effort going in. Is that a trap that you've fallen into previously in your career, chasing times rather than focusing on what the purpose of a workout is and what else you want to get out of a race? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think uh, I'll, an example is um, about a week ago I had mile repeats on the track, and um, they were fast for me. They weren't fast compared to, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, you see some of the elite runners that – post these insane workouts but for me like they were like 512 ish pace and that's fast for me um and I was uh the the last rep like starting out um I told myself like if I hit a and I was struggling it was hot it's a hot day in Tucson <laughs> and I was struggling and I was like you know what? I'm not even gonna look at my watch this time um and actually like ran my best rep of the workout and um I think, yeah, like I've fallen in both my last training cycles. I think that's been my downfall is like if I go into a workout tired rather than putting it off for the next day, like I'll dig myself deeper in the hole and I'm trying to break out of that cycle. Well, you're just telling me before the shakeout run here this morning how you moved your tempo run from Thursday to yesterday and then shortened exactly. your long run today so yeah you know it seems like you're reminding yourself of that now on a regular basis yeah exactly and like and that's what my, my husband's kind of been telling me that is in his opinion the difference between the really great runners and the runners who are just good is the great runners are like they have enough confidence in themselves that they don't get obsessed with the numbers and like if they don't feel it that day like they either take the day off they take the day easy like they don't just keep digging deeper one thing that you just 
mentioned that I'd love to dig into is, I'll call it the comparison trap. We see it as age group athletes, especially with social media and Strava, you can see what everyone else is doing, people that you race against, and it can be really easy to belittle yourself and say, my workout wasn't as good as that person, or they're running you know, 50 miles a week and I'm running 35 miles a week and you yeah. can feel bad about what you're doing. Is that something that you've struggled with as an elite athlete? Oh, for sure. And especially, yeah, I think Instagram and social media can be a huge benefit, but it also the comparison aspect of it is um, ex- it's extremely hard to get over, especially when you are like a type A numbers obsessed person. Um, like I said, there's some of my fellow competitors who I feel like um, were pretty similar racing wise, and I'll see some of the workouts that they post, and I'm just like, I don't know if I could do that on the best of my life. Like, I really don't. And then you start, you're like, it, it starts this negative um, cycle of like, why do I even do this? Why am I putting in so much work when I can't, I can't even do the workouts they do? So I think it's um, context is everything. Like, you know, you're like, I, they have a different coach. They're running different mileage. They like, it doesn't really matter. Like it comes down to everyone trying to show up as prepared as they can on race day. And so I think the comparison trap um, in general, for me, it's a negative thing. Like, it's it, there's never, even if I see someone post a workout that I'm like, oh, that'd be easy. Like, I, like that thought process never occurs. I only look at the workouts where I'm like, you know, that would be impossible in my world. <laughs> How do you dig yourself out of it when you catch yourself, you know, feeling bad about yourself after you see, like, oh, you ran 512 for your mile repeats, and maybe you see someone that you're going to compete against running, like, 455s or exactly. five minutes. Like, how do, you, how do you reconcile that on your end so you can say, that actually was a really solid workout. Like, I'm good. I can't worry about what they're doing. Um, part of it, I think, uh, especially when it gets close to competitions, um, I just have to step away from it. Mm-hmm. Like, just not even engage in... Um, you know, kind of the scrolling and seeing like what other people are doing because it is such like a natural um, thought process. And especially I think during, you know, the, the, the really tough parts of the race when you're mentally challenged, um, that's when the demons come. And I think when you've put demons there, like, you know, someone else's workout, like when you're head to head with someone, and you put that in your head that they did a workout that you couldn't do, like, that's a demon that you don't need there. So I think the biggest thing is just stepping away from it and then also just trying to focus on, like, my own progression and realizing that that really, that's ultimately what it's about. I'm never going to be the fastest around in the world, so it doesn't matter if, you know, person A did a better workout or a better race. It's a personal progression. Let's talk about your progression. Chicago is going to be your fifth marathon. You've run mm-hmm. four prior, two Boston's in New York, and was it Huntsville was mm-hmm. your first one? Yeah. So your first two were 244-ish. Your last two yeah. were 236-ish. What have you learned from the first four marathons that you've run, or maybe specifically the last two that you've made a breakthrough in? Yeah, so I'd say, um, I guess starting from the beginning, first marathon, I didn't do any marathon-specific training, and I couldn't walk normal for, like, solid two weeks after so I learned that marathon training is a thing even if you think you're like a runner and you can just walk out the door and run a marathon like marathon training is a thing um second marathon Boston 2018 like I learned that you know just gritting it out and putting in the work sometimes like things that shouldn't happen can happen um third marathon New York um 
I would say I learned um, one that I was a lot mentally tougher than I thought because I got into some, I ran the majority of the race by myself and I got in some really tough patches where I was cramping up and um, it, I was pretty far off my time goal, but um, for how I felt, like I felt like I learned a lot about um, what I could get through in a race. That was probably the mentally hardest race that I had. Um, and then this last Boston 2019, um, I'd say I learned uh, kind of what I'm trying to focus on for this next training block that um, I'm telling myself I'm training my body, not numbers. Because like anyone and my coach told me that like um, when I kind of talked to him after Boston this year and said, you know, that I felt like I went in a little overtrained and it was my fault. It wasn't his fault. It's like I could have given him better feedback and I would never give dishonest feedback, but I also wasn't completely open. Like, cause we have, he, my coach lives in Utah. I live in Arizona. So it's a distance coaching um, relationship. And when I know what's going to happen, like if I tell him that I had to kill myself to hit this workout, he's going to cut me back and he should cut me back. But like, since I know that's what he's going to do, Sometimes, like, I just won't be totally open about that's how I felt. Um, and I think Boston 2019, I, um, I went in feeling overtrained and feeling like six weeks before the race, I could have run a much better marathon than I ran that day. Um, so that's kind of the thing I'm trying to focus on this time. We talked a little about this in our last conversation, but have you always been a pusher? Yeah, yes, definitely. Like if <laughs> I'm very much a like if my coach tells me, you know, to run mile repeats at whatever it is, I'm like if you know it's got to be that or faster. Like that's kind of like the slowest that I'm allowed to run it. Does that mentality spill over into other aspects of your life as well? Uh, probably, yeah. <laughs> I think um, it. It probably, the, the one aspect it doesn't spill over into that I have to really push for is into recovery. Like, I'll, I have a tendency to think of recovery as just being lazy, mm-hmm. and I tend to get very down on myself if I'm, like, actively recovering. I'm like, well, I'm a worthless piece of garbage if I'm not producing something right now. Um, so, yeah. So how do you reconcile that, knowing that, that's kind of your kryptonite. It's your greatest strength that you can push hard and take yourself to these levels. But at the same time, you need to know when to hold yourself back. Otherwise, you can run yourself into injury, burnout, or any number of other bad situations. Yeah, so I think part of it, um, I'd say that's one positive aspect of the comparison game is when I see some of the people that I race against that run lower mileage, did workouts that I could definitely do, and have better races, I'm like, well, like... They're, they're clearly not working harder than me, and they're having better outcomes. And so um, realizing that, that um, you know, the whole, like, stressing your body and then resting, um, if you're not getting enough of the rest side, um, and kind of that comparison with other people and realizing, like, you know, if they're succeeding more on the rest side, then that's probably where I should put my focus. A little while ago, you touched on your training and said how and. After that first marathon, you realized what marathon training actually is. How has your training evolved from that first marathon through what you're going to be doing leading up to Chicago this fall? 
Yeah, so the first marathon I did was very much on a whim. It was, I wanted to qualify for Boston to run since my brother was running it. So I literally did zero marathon-specific workouts or long runs. I just figured, you know, I come from running backgrounds, like, pridefully, like, I can walk out the door and run a marathon. Um, so I got humbled. Yeah, never go into a marathon prideful or you, karma's going to come after you. And I learned that. Well, it's like Bill Rogers' quote, the marathon will humble you. Exactly. It did, very much. <laughs> I still don't know if I've ever been in as much pain physically as I was the last three miles of that marathon. Like, it was, um, there's, a, I think, a 5K that started, um, and they timed it so that um, kind of the winners of the marathon were passing the 5K runners in the last 5K. And in all honesty, if I was not passing, like, um, the 5K kind of walking group, if I had not was not passing, like, hundreds of 5K walkers and, like, would have felt shameful walking, I would have walked because I was in <laughs> so much pain. Like, I was... And then after the race, um, they had the winners of the men's and women's marathons lead a kid's run. And it was, like, around the block. It was probably 600 meters. And... They made the kids, uh, and the, the men's winner was like, yeah, I'm out. I'm not doing that. <laughs> but I felt bad, so I was like, I'll do that. So I, um, they start this kid's run, and they told the kids that I was supposed to lead the run. The kids had to stay behind me. And <laughs> I could, I've never not been able to physically run. I physically couldn't actually, I couldn't run. I was doing like this awkward, like, hop, skip thing. And the whole time they're yelling at the kids, like, slow down, you can't, you can't pass Sarah. And the kids are like, why is she so slow? <laughs> so, Are you sure yeah. she just won this marathon? Yeah, they're like, crushing her right now. They're like walking next to me as I'm like That's hilarious. hobbling. So that was my first marathon experience. Um, my marathon training now is, is drastically different. Um, I'm running higher mileage. Um, I did cut back on my work hours. So I'm about 30 hours a week. Um, and again, most of that is going towards trying to recover better. It's not like I'm, you know, running an extra 10 to 20 hours a week. Like, no, but I'm just trying to recover and do more strength training and yeah. Are the workouts themselves any different in terms of how you structure the long runs or maybe the speed work or any of that sort of stuff? Um, I'd say the structure is very similar, I guess. So we'll say comparing to Boston training for Boston 2018, because training for Huntsville, that was not a thing. There wasn't training for Huntsville. So, um, training for my first, my first real marathon training block, I'd say, um, now it's very similar, but, um, just like each block has gotten a little bit faster, a little bit longer and just kind of, um, trying to tweak something each time, but not any like drastic changes. Just a little more intentional than yeah, exactly. it was in the past. Yeah. You mentioned how you cut back your work hours to about 30 hours per week, yeah. which is still almost a full-time job. But what you're doing, I mean, you're a nurse anesthetist. I can't even say it. It's okay. Say <laughs> it for me. Nurse anesthetist. Okay. And you're working, I mean, you're, you know, you are working, you know, around folks who, you know, have either been in accidents or dealing with like hard things in yeah. their life. Like they're not like in a great spot. It's a stressful job is what I'm, I'm getting yeah. at. How do you fit a high level of training around a high stress job that's still occupying a good chunk of your week yeah um i think it is a lot easier balance now that i did cut back my hours um training for boston 2018 was i felt like i was burning the candle at both ends and i knew that i could do it for a short period of time for you know three to six months but i knew it was not sustainable long term so 
after Boston when I decided I really do want to commit to running a little bit more. Like I, I knew the way I had, even though it had worked for Boston that year, like it was not sustainable. It was um, heading towards injury and burnout. Um, so cut back my work hours and um, now on on the days that I do work, it still is really busy um, as everybody who runs knows and works, which is the majority of runners. Um, I think though, like the, the, every time I've asked myself if I wanted to like, cause my work has been extremely supportive and they've said, you know, if you want to like take a leave of absence or, um, you know, cut back completely. And I feel like extremely uncomfortable about doing that. Um, I think for a few reasons, I think, um, my work keeps me grounded. Like if I am devoting too much time to running and thinking about running, I think I'll, I drive myself into, um, you know, getting so obsessed with workouts and suddenly it would be, you know, now it's, it's kind of nice in some ways when there is like, um, not an excuse, but kind of a rationale where it's like, you know, I am trying to balance things. Whereas if I was a hundred percent just running, if I have a bad workout, I'd be like, well, I didn't succeed at anything. That's the only thing I'm doing. So it's nice to sometimes, like, you have a bad workout, you have a bad week, show up at work, and I feel like I'm able to contribute and to help someone. How else does it shape your perspective? Because you're dealing with patients who are struggling with some pretty intense things. Does that yeah. help? Is it sobering for you in a way to be yeah. in that environment and when you think about what you're doing on the other side of your profession? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, so. I'm a anesthesia provider and I work at a trauma one hospital. So we see everything from, you know, very simple, uh, straightforward outpatient cases to horrific traumas and major cancer resections. And um, so it's, I think it keeps me very balanced in terms of like, um, even when I do, it's, it's interesting. Like when I have a case that, um, you know, like a young person having some horrific cancer resection that, um, it's heartbreaking, but it's also like, I feel extremely, um, grateful and fortunate to, um, to be like a very small part of their treatment. Um, and I think if I gave that, like, I would miss that a lot if I gave that up. In the past, you've dealt with numerous injuries, mostly stress-related, yeah. back in college and maybe even a little while out of school. But you've, to my knowledge, been relatively healthy the last couple of years that you've been focusing more on the roads and on the marathon. What steps have you taken to keep yourself healthy and keep your body strong over the past couple of years? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I think um, number one thing for me has been nutrition and weight. Um, and I think that's a like a buzzword hot topic right now. And, you know, there's been a lot of positive things that have happened. Um, Allie Kiefer was actually a huge inspiration to me when she ran New York because that was, um, she ran New York and I think placed, she placed fifth or fourth or fifth. Yeah. yeah the, when she did that, it was right after I ran Huntsville and when I was training for Boston. Um, and she was very outspoken in saying, you know, that she didn't consider herself a stereotypical marathon build. And um, I had, in college, like, I had weight goals, and, like, my coach never gave me those goals. That was very much self-imposed. Um, 
and I was always trying to be like a little bit lighter. Um, I was never like, you know, I was never pathologically thin. Um, then again, I had three stress fractures, so you could call that pathologic. <laughs> um, but I think when I had to take years off of running um, due to a very difficult to heal stress fracture, um, when I finally got to come back to running, like my number one goal was no longer run as fast as I can. My number one goal was I don't want to have to give this up long term again. Um, and so that was motivation to um, have proper nutrition and to realize like if I have to be five to ten pounds heavier than what I thought my goal weight was, but if that keeps me healthy, like it's worth it. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger women out there now and men who are struggling with similar issues? Um, yeah, I would say um, like focus on what your body can do and not your perception of what your body looks like. Because first of all, what you perceive your body looks like is like you don't have an accurate perspective on what you look like compared to what other people think. And it doesn't really matter what other people think. So um, really performance um, is a lot more important. And um, what's vastly more important than performance is your long-term health. And um, like I remember having a really like now what I see is a scary thought process in high school where um, my dad would tell me uh, that he didn't think, um, sorry, excuse me. He didn't think that my fastest weight was necessarily my healthiest weight. Like, he didn't think those were the same number. And I very much disagreed with that. But I also thought that um, if he, that if it was that my fastest weight was not my healthiest weight, that I would pick my fastest weight. And that I remember thinking I didn't really care if I had long-term health outcome or health um, detriments due to making that decision because I thought, you know, when I'm 40 and osteoporotic, it will have been worth it. And like, I actually thought that <laughs> that's pretty terrifying. But now being out of that, like, I don't know, ridiculous thought process. And again, I was never like a really pathologic level of um, thin, but being out of that thought process and realizing that, um, your healthiest weight, like that's what matters and that's what's going to keep you running long-term. And if your healthiest weight and your fastest weight are not the same thing, your fastest weight is only going to be your fastest weight for a short period because very quickly, like you're going to run into long-term injuries that could be career ending. I appreciate you sharing that. I think it's a very important takeaway for all of us because as athletes, as people in general, we can be just very short-sighted in many aspects of our life. We're only yeah. seeing like what's going to affect us now or yeah. maybe you know, in the next year or so and not how those decisions are going to affect maybe our performance, our health, our overall life long-term. Um, yeah, so exactly. it's important that we take that into consideration. On the topic of nutrition, Generation UCAN brought us here. Yeah. They are the official supplier of nutrition for the San Francisco Marathon, which is going to happen in two weeks. A lot of folks in this crowd are going to be racing and are thinking about their race day nutrition plan. Yeah, I'd love for you to share yours with us. What does that look like for you on marathon race day from the time you get up all the way to the finish line? And second part of that is how has it evolved over the course of four marathons? Because it is a very individual thing and can be in flux for many of us. Yeah. Um, so marathon race day, I wake up um, about, well, 
depending on the race. I'll usually start eating something about three hours before the race. Um, so typically I'll have uh, like half of a um, like half a bagel, like some some type of fairly simple carbohydrates, half a banana. I don't know. I feel like pieces of I'm I'm, I'm weird where I like eating pieces of things. So <laughs> my husband make fun, makes fun of that. I'll like leave pieces of things on the counter. It's very weird. But anyways, I'll have like <laughs> part of a few different, basically whatever sounds good to me. Um, so the goal is some simple carbohydrates adding up to about um, three to 400 calories, um, some hydration. So I always have like you can hydration. And then um, starting about two hours before the race is when I start having um, actually you can. Um, like the super starch mix. Exactly, the super starch. And I'll usually try to have about half of, I'll have two servings and I'll have about half of that um, in the first like half hour from the two hour to the start time race and then kind of finish it off by an hour before the start. So pretty much by the, an hour before I start the race, I've had um, three to 400 calories of um, somewhat simple carbohydrates, a little bit of protein, try to have minimal fat, minimal fiber, um, a couple servings of UCAN, um, UCAN hydrate. Um, and then during the race, I have uh, fluids every three miles and then something with calories every six miles. Um, so I typically have like a gel every six miles and then I'll have um, like halfway through the race, I'll have you can um, again some super starch. And has that been your strategy since the first marathon, or has it evolved over the course of the last few? Uh, so my f- strategy for my first marathon is I forgot to bring any goos with or any like gels with me. <laughs> and at the f- the you really did just do it on a whim. I literally did. <laughs> so. I didn't even have like any race shoes. I was just using like trainers that probably had 800 miles on them. Like <laughs> it's terrible. Um, so at the 10K mark um, where they had the first gel station, I like tried to grab a gel and I like hit it out of two people's hands and then just gave up. <laughs> and <laughs> then I I ended up running with um, Katie Thompson for several miles and um, she realized that I hadn't had any nutrition around halfway and she's like well, do you want one of my goos? I'm like, I, you've been carrying that half a mar- Like, I can't take one of your goos. But she's like, no, I brought an extra. I promised I'm not going to use it. So I totally took one of her <laughs> one of her gels. So that was my first nutrition race, um, or race, first marathon nutrition plant strategy. So it has gotten much more dialed in from there. So on a number of angles, there was nowhere to go but up after that first marathon. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, Chicago's still a few months away. What do things look like for you in the next couple of months from a training and racing standpoint before you really get into quote-unquote marathon training? Yeah, um, so I actually am kind of just getting into marathon training now. So I, um, after Boston this year, I actually, um, I think since I felt pretty overtrained going into the race, um, it was a pretty rough recovery. Um, so after <laughs> the night after the race, I spend a couple hours like looking at all these different marathons and like my goal was I I had this fantasy that I was in actually great marathon shape and I could um you know take a couple weeks recovery and come back and run a great marathon um 
Just because you and were disappointed in Exactly, because I was disappointed in my time. Like, I thought I had a lot, um, based on my workouts from a couple months before, like, I should have run a much better marathon. Um, but I was still under this fallacy that I, like, I wasn't owning up to the fact that I was actually overtrained. And, like, the only thing that was going to fix that was taking time off and building all the way back up. Um, so finally, when I came to terms with that, I... Um, I took my, my coach had me take a couple months of just like distance running, no hard workouts. Um, so the last month or so I've been back in hard workouts, um, building my mileage back up. Um, I feel a lot healthier again. Um, so I think Chicago is only like 12 weeks away or something like that from now. 14, I think. 14. Okay. I should probably know that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Very much like still a on the whim runner, I guess, (laughs) which is not good. But, um, yeah, so just getting into the marathon main block now. So typically I'll do, you know, kind of standard, like, one long run a week. Every other long run is usually a hard long run, um, two speed workouts a week, if I feel good, sometimes one speed workout a week. How important is it for you throughout the year, especially after a marathon, whether it went well or it didn't, to take that chunk of time not like off from running, but out of training mode where you're not doing those workouts. You're not thinking about the numbers. You're just out there running and enjoying it before you turn the dial again and start ramping up for the next one. Um, I think it's really important. I think I really, really struggle with that because especially when it's a marathon that I'm not totally satisfied with my performance, um, my immediate reaction is like like after Boston this year, like get back out there and prove my prove it to myself that I can do it. Um, So I think I initially usually go through like a period where I try to pretend that I can (laughs) get right back into training and then my body quickly tells me that that's not possible. Um, So I think when I've come to terms with the fact that I like really do need the downtime, um, I think that's that's key. I don't know who I should know the source of this analogy because I think about it often um, but I, someone compared marathon, uh, a marathon training and then racing itself to like pushing a boulder up a hill. Do you know who? It's the myth of Sisyphus. Oh, really? I'm a philosophy the, major, so oh, I remember wow. this. It's like, well, Sisyphus pushed this boulder okay. up a hill and it keeps rolling back on you and then you pick it up and, you, and he gets like a little bit higher, but it still rolls back on him and you just, you're constantly in this process of pushing the boulder up the hill. Exactly. And so, and is it true? So did I make this part up that when you get to the top of the hill, that's like, race day and then you like the boulder crashes down the hill and that's like the race so at the end of the marathon you just like crash down the hill and you're now at the bottom of the hill and the only way to get back to the top of the hill is like pushing the boulder back up up. yep no that's accurate okay (laughs) i appreciate that (laughs) that's good (laughs) i love that you knew the exact source of that that's great (laughs) so i always feel like at the end of like when i'm the boulder at the bottom of the hill i pretend I'm still at the top of the hill for a few days and then I find out like no I'm at the bottom I'm at the very bottom of the hill and reality I like sets in yeah. start all the way back over <laughs> so. a couple more questions before yeah. we open it up to the crowd I know you love the outdoors you like to go hiking you go mountain biking yeah. trail running as well your marathon career is still relatively young in, in its early stages but yeah. have you ever thought about trail racing or doing an ultra someday I would love to yes I would definitely say um, especially, I don't know when, but like, I have not planned anything post Olympic trials and I'm hoping that, um, kind of post racing, um, you know, into the 
first two thirds of next year. I don't know. We'll see. Sometime after then, I think it would be really fun. All right. Heard it here first on the yeah. Morning Shakeout podcast. <laughs> yeah. Last question. You will always be known as Sarah Sellers, who finished second at the Boston Marathon in 2018. I know that's not the only way you want people to think about you. How would you like people to think about Sarah Sellers? Oh, that's a scary question. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess I hope that um, people see me as like genuine and that um, like I know I'm incredibly imperfect, but I'm not afraid to like put myself. I used to be afraid um, to put myself out there, but I I think I've gotten over a lot of the the fear of putting myself out there. And so I, I, I hope people can relate to kind of my story and to just, um, the fact that, you know, I'm not naturally extroverted. Like it does not come naturally for me to put myself out there, but I feel like I've, um, I've had some really cool experiences and like, I've been really fortunate to have, um, a cool story that, I feel like I was not responsible for like a true, that's not a humble brag. Like I actually, in, in reality, based on the way that I trained for or didn't train for Huntsville, you know, I was not, um, sorry, <coughs> I'm not getting emotional. I have like a tickle in my throat, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was, um, you know, I, I do not take responsibility for coming in second place in Boston. Like, yes, I worked hard. Thousands of women work hard for that. Um, so I guess I feel like I had a really cool story and experience happen to me and, um, yeah, I'm just grateful for that experience. Well, and you're still writing it. Yeah. I think there are, there are chapters still to come in the story. So hopefully we haven't seen the end of it yet. Exactly. Well, thanks. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the morning shakeout podcast. This was great. Um, thank you all for coming out. We're going to open it up to Q and A. said you get up three hours before your or you start eating three hours before your race so do you go to sleep or <laughs> I mean like do you do you go to bed at like what time do you go to bed so that is only race day so I should clarify um you can actually really did change my training and my sleep in terms of for my long runs and for my workouts I usually only have you can before I might have like a little bit of cereal or a few pieces of something. <laughs> um, so for, again, for workouts and long runs, um, I'm able to sleep right up until like 30 to 45 minutes before my run. And I just have you can before the run. Um, for a marathon, I like to have um, something like uh, pieces of something. I don't know. And I don't sleep very well before a marathon anyways. Um, so typically like I never worry the, the, the sleep, the night before the race, I kind of don't even count as a thing. Like I try to get good sleep, but it, it never is high quality sleep. Like I'm always restless. Um, so yeah, I'll wake up early and just kind of start eating pieces of things and then work up to, um, starting the you can about two hours before. Yeah, for sure. Hello. Um, I got lucky in the Chicago Marathon, not through uh, qualifying, just for the sweepstake. That's awesome. That's great. So I'm just starting my training now, yeah. and I'm doing the full also for the SF. 
So okay, what cool. do you, what can you um, advise on me? Am I just it's just okay? I'm just starting my training now. Yeah. Um, have you ever done a marathon? Yeah, San Francisco. Okay, that's great. Um, so I guess you mean like in terms of your training itself? I would say uh, first of all, you're doing two marathons pretty close together, which is doable. But um, I would pick one as being kind of your your focus marathon, and the other one is more of just like a good practice long run. So if possible, I would probably put Chicago, since it's the later one, as like your focus race, and then use San Francisco as a training run. And don't worry about your time. Um, don't have it be a super hard effort. And then make sh- number one thing between San Francisco and Chicago is those first few weeks after San Francisco, get really good recovery and then start building up for Chicago. I'm really impressed with the fact that you are a professional and have a career. Could you talk a oh, little thanks. bit more about how you balance being an elite athlete and having a really important career? Yeah, so I think um, for me, cutting back work hours um, was really key for being able to do this sustainably long term. Because kind of like I said, where I I thought I could um, keep up, you know, when I was training for Boston 2018, um, four or five days a week, I was doing, you know, I was doing probably 80% of my mileage at either 4 a.m. or 7 or 8 p.m., which is not anything that other people don't do. Um, but I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. Um, I was probably sleeping an average of six hours a night. Um, there were a lot of nights when I was sleeping like four hours. Um, so it's like when you are trying to balance a career and um, training at a high level, um, I think short term you can make sacrifices and your body can kind of adapt to doing that. But if you're really going to do it long term, you kind of have to pick what the focus is at the moment. Yeah. Um, so at Boston 2018, um, I know that you're from Arizona. So did you experience any of the hyperthermia that everyone else did? And as a nurse, were you concerned about that? Um, I never felt really like internally hypothermic. Um, I felt like like externally, like my skin was cold and I was really uncomfortable. Um, I think, like, I, I actually wore an extra jacket for the first three miles of the race, um, and I think that was pretty key because um, we we started out pretty slow. So I think um, I stayed warm when my heart rate was pretty low, and then as my heart rate got up um, a couple miles into the race um, and my jacket was soaked through at that point, I got rid of the jacket. And, um, yeah, I also kind of saw myself as, like, relatively a, polar bear out there and so I, I don't know you take that however you will but I felt like I was um like I never got interned because there were some some of the athletes who obviously like physiologically like they were hypothermic and there there was nothing they could have done they probably couldn't have worn four jackets and had it help um but yeah I was fortunate I never really felt like I was internally freezing quick follow-up to that how much of it on that day for you personally was 
psychological. I mean, I ran I ran the Boston Marathon that day too, oh, yeah. and I know a lot of people are going into the race just being like, "Oh my God, the weather's so crappy," and they had just yeah. like a terrible attitude when they got in the start line. What was your attitude when you were on the start line? Um, on the start line, I felt like. Uh, I was surrounded by friends because I felt like we really banded together, like the group of elite women really banded together right before the race. And we were like, you know, yes, this weather is ridiculous, but it's also kind of cool. And like, we're going to get each other through this. Like, we're going to work together. We're going to trade leads. Um, So I felt like I was surrounded by friends. And then also like, I mean, I knew having run at Weber State and coming from Ogden, Utah, um, I had had my fair share of like cold, sleepy Miserable runs. Days. Exactly. Yeah. So it was like I knew physiologically like I was going to be totally fine. So psychologically, it wasn't that big of a deal. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Hi. So um, you had said that one of your races you had cramps, and I always wonder like how do you deal with cramps during a race? Um, don't let them happen. <laughs> uh, I would say, yeah, prevention is the best cure. So I'd start with that side of um, stay hydrated and have like a um, whatever you do in training, do that in racing. Um, So, you know, for me, when I have a gel, I have it with just water. When I don't have a gel, I have electrolytes. So I kind of trade off like every three miles I'm having something and it's – that being said, um, when I cramped up, I don't think it was due to uh, nutrition or to my hydration strategy. Um, so do everything you can to prevent it. But then when when it happens, um, just kind of grit your way through it. Um, so for me in, in New York... Um, I around mile 16 coming along First Avenue, which is just like this screaming tunnel of people, and it's amazing. But I had like terrible abdominal cramps, and I still don't know exactly what to attribute it to. Again, I I, I didn't change my hydration strategy or my nutrition strategy, so it was um, I felt like that was not the culprit. Um, I honestly don't I don't know if like stress was part of it because I think you can have as much as as much as we like to think we're all pretty level-headed, like I think stress can have some pretty significant physiologic effects. And so um, when you're faced with whether it's like leg cramping or stomach cramping or whatever it is, um, I actually told myself coming down First Avenue um, that when I got to, I knew there was a bridge coming up where there would be no people. So I was like, if I'm still cramping that bad by the bridge, um, when I'm like by myself, um, I'm going to stop and see if I can get the cramp to subside because it was, it was hindering my running enough. And I'm like, even if I stop for a minute and add a minute to my time, but the cramp goes away, that's probably going to be um, a better strategy. So I'd, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's what I did. <laughs> so earlier in the podcast, you talked about you weren't sure going into 2018 Boston that that second place was going to happen for you when during the race did you know or realize that this was going to happen for you and like what was your thought process through that so I realized after I finished (laughs) like at at no point during the race did I ever think I was in second at like at no point if I had had a multiple choice test 
and the only answer on it was second place, I would have failed that test. Like, there, yeah, that was never a thought. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I crossed the finish line thinking, like, in no idea what place I was in, but thinking, like, you know, I had passed some of the favorites in the race. Granted, those favorites were also having a really terrible day, so it's like, you know, they could be in 35th place, and I'm, you know, passing a favorite in the race in 30th, 35th place. Um, but yeah, I, when I crossed the finish line, I thought like best case scenario, I'm like in the top 10. What'd you say when you were told that you had gotten second? Uh, I made her repeat it multiple <laughs> times. I was like, yeah, there's no way you don't know my question. What place was I? And she's like, no, really? You were second. I'm like, no, you don't understand. What place was I? It's like, yeah. All right. That is it for the Q and a portion of the podcast, thank you all so much for coming out and for the run earlier. Thank you. Round of applause for Sarah. All right, folks, we did it. Another episode in the books. Before we wrap up, I'd like to once again thank UCAN for sponsoring this episode. UCAN powders and bars with super starch give you slow-release carbs and long-lasting energy without the big crash. I've used the super starch drink powder to fuel my last few marathons, and the new Hydrate product, which I've been taking on my longer training runs, is a clean, natural electrolyte replacement with no sugar, zero calories, and five added electrolytes to replace the nutrients that you lose in sweat. Visit GenerationUCAN.com and use the code SHAKEOUT25, that's 2-5 at the end of SHAKEOUT, to save 25% on your first order. Or you can use the code SHAKEOUT, no number at the end of that one, and save 15% on subsequent orders. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on your preferred social media platform and encourage your friends and followers to tune in and subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. It only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. Thank you to everyone who's done so already. Another big thank you, as always, to my man John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He is my audio ninja for this show and he makes every episode sound clear and amazing even when I mess something up on the mics. Last thing. If you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.